Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is a podcast from BBC Studios. BBC Studios. A commercial subsidiary. subsidiary. Of the BBC. You're almost transported into their world, the world of the arthropods. It's just you and that subject and the outdoors. You're not worried about your your checkered history or past. You're not worried about what you're going to do next week. You're just thinking about what is happening right in front of you. When you're in that moment, it's bliss. Welcome to the BBC Earth podcast. The podcast that's getting lost in a world of its own. My name is Matthew Duke. Some people know me as Macro Matt. When Matt was in his early 20s, his mental health wasn't in a good shape. He was anxious and often angry for reasons he couldn't explain. Whenever I went into work, I, I thought people were conspiring against me. I thought people were talking about me. You know, I'd be really angry. I'd be, I'd be really stressed. I'd be going to the toilet and I'd, and I'd be screaming. And that would be sort of my outlook to everything. If I missed a bus, if something didn't go right at home, I would just go crazy, you know, I would just, this red mist would set in. It was nothing to do with the situation. It was actually due, to do with me hating myself. And that was always there. And I couldn't live like that, you know. I'd also tried to kill myself twice, unbeknown to most of my family, unbeknown to my wife. I wanted my mind to stop working the way it was working. I wanted to stop feeling like I was feeling. So I needed to do something. And the only people who I thought would help me would be the doctors. I went to the doctors and they called my name and I couldn't get up. I didn't know what to say, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what was going on with my mind. I ended up having a panic attack in the waiting room. And they took me in, you know, and they calmed me down. And then he just asked the simple question, which was, you know, what's wrong? And I just, I just burst out crying. I didn't get to cancel like two or three appointments, you know. I was in there with this whole list of things. I did feel a little bit better for explaining how my mind was working and being told, well, this is actually okay. You know, we can get to the bottom of why you're thinking like this and feeling like this. I grew up in Salford. It was considered one of the roughest areas in Manchester. It wasn't cool to like nature. It wasn't cool to take an interest in science. And so, despite having that passion as a, as a child for geology and nature and natural history, it was sort of robbed from me from, I suppose, the social pressures of, of the peer groups that I was with, the people I was sort of mixing with. You, you wouldn't tell them this because you would be, you'd be bullied. I also had a difficult home life. My parents were divorced, you know, the whole broken home situation. My mother was disabled, so I was her main carer for up until my early 20s. So I just buried it deep down and, and just forgot about this interest that I had and became a completely different person to fit in with society. It turned out that there's only so long you can put on a fake smile. There's only so long you can portray to be somebody who you're not until the cracks start to show. And those cracks start to show 
in, in your mental health as stress and anger and depression. And that all come to a head, you know, in my early 20s. So I went to the doctors, I had the panic attack and they diagnosed me on the spot with suffering with depression, um, high levels of stress, acute paranoia, anxiety and anger management issues. You know, it was a, quite a list <laughs> that I came out of there with. Nothing that I didn't really know myself, but to, to have that confirmed was, it was a little bit daunting. But I began to understand and have this realisation that I needed something different, which wasn't antidepressants, which wasn't speaking to a psychiatrist. I needed to occupy my mind, I needed to occupy my time. So what did I do as a child that filled that time, filled that void, and that's when I tapped back into this passion for geology, astronomy, the natural world. My wife's uncle was a photographer and we started going on hikes with them because they did a lot of hikes. And I absolutely loved the being out in the elements, the rain, the snow, the wind, the sun, you know, you name it, we walked in it. Getting to see these places in the Lake District, in the Peak District, is just absolutely amazing. And you could feel the sort of I don't know, this elevation of the mind. He would always have cameras. As I say, he was a photographer. He was capturing pictures of us and the, the landscapes and it, I was amazed by it. So he sold me a really old Sony Alpha A100 and this whole world just opened up to me then. I was absolutely hooked with the photographer. I always had a particular interest in, in the small stuff. So, when I discovered that you could get amazing photos with macro lenses, a macro kit, that was the avenue of chase. I was like, okay, well, I'm going to have a look at this and, and see where this leads. Macro photography is the photography of small things, extreme close-ups of tiny worlds seen through magnifying lenses. Creatures that really fascinate me are spiders. I also love ants. I mean, sometimes I just watch through my camera and I wouldn't even take pictures because I'd just be transfixed at this ant carrying, you know, something along a brick wall and I'd just follow it with my camera, just like inspecting the body, inspecting everything about this world. And then I would think, how does this ant live? What's this world like? What's it like to be an ant, you know? And before you know it, two, three hours, you're in the grass in the fields and you've, you've lost track of this time, but you're no longer in this world, the world that's full of sort of social compliance and constraints. The bad news and negativity, the fake news, all that's gone. Being out in the field, in a meadow, surrounded by mountains, the sound of water rushing, birds, and then just silence as I go into my camera and I go into the undergrowth and I'm underneath these logs and I'm in this leaf litter and I'm finding these little creatures that nobody sees, that nobody hears. And that's me in my world right there, transported through the camera into their world, the world of the arthropods, and it's absolutely bliss. When I broke through and started to learn more about the photography of the natural world and, and being who I used to be, you know, loving comics, being a bit geeky as you would call it, the mask breaks and falls away. And the real me is shown to the world. I love being me. I love being a geek. I love being quirky. You know, and I think the best people 
I like that. If you've been affected by this story and you're in the UK, search BBC Headroom for mental health resources and support. You're listening to the BBC Earth podcast, where today we're getting lost in a world of our own. For our next story, we're going deep, deep down to the bottom of the ocean. There are strange creatures down here in the murky depths, living without sunlight, eking out a life in a world so difficult and different to ours, it's hard for us to even imagine. Now, let's go even deeper. At the bottom of the oceans, there's a kind of a global covering of, of mud, of sediment that's been accumulating there over the last several million, million years. Digging down into it is like digging into the crust of Mars. And tantalisingly, even so deep and so far away from anything we might think of as habitable, there is life, and a lot of it. Contained within this mud are generally single-celled organisms, bacteria and archaea, that survive within this dark, often lacking oxygen and energy-limited environment. I guess these organisms are almost there by accident because they would have been attached to particles that are sinking through the ocean and then deposited on this seafloor environment and almost trapped within this mud. And then it's just a question of how long they can hang on in there for. They don't have uh, necessarily the motility to be able to, to move and then more sediment is deposited on top of them. So they need to use essentially the resources that they've been buried with in order to gain energy to try to survive or thrive within this environment. James Bradley is a lecturer in environmental science at Queen Mary University in London. So I do research on a number of different themes in environmental science, kind of all wrapped around the idea of understanding the interactions between life and its environment. Over the last several decades, scientists have been going out on oceanographic cruises that would sail into the middle of the ocean. And these ships have the capability to lower a drill down to the seafloor throughout kind of kilometers deep oceans and then drill deep into this sediment. So they can drill hundreds of meters or even kilometers deep into the sediment and collect this material in a big long core and recover that back up to the surface of the ocean where it can be analyzed on the ship. This analysis creates data about the makeup of these cores. James and his team plotted this data into tens of thousands of grid boxes, each representing a section. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Of the ocean. Then, using modelling, they could predict what life was buried in the sediment all over the world. And maybe more importantly, what it was doing or not doing. The organisms that we find in the deep subsurface, in sediments that underlie the oceans, in this remote, dark, hostile environment, they're using power that's even less than anything that we have calculated before, tens to hundreds of times less. So these, these organisms, they really do push the boundaries in terms of what we consider to be the limits of life. Power, if you remember secondary school physics, is energy over time. You and I are running on roughly 100 watts, about the same as two light bulbs, which seems fairly low. Well, these organisms might use 50 billion billionths of this power much lower than anyone thought they could be surviving on. So what we think we have here is a biosphere that's made up almost entirely of zombie-like organisms that are surviving over extraordinarily long timescales, upwards of thousands of years, using extremely little energy and, and really doing very little. When we go out, and drill into extremely old sediment, so sediment that was deposited maybe 50 million or 70 million years ago, we still find these intact microbial cells. Not very many of them, but they're, they're still there. Putting that together with the knowledge that these organisms might not have enough energy in order to divide, in order to build new cells and to double, that leads to the question of, is this the same cell or just a, a more recent ancestor of the original cell that was deposited 70 million years ago? And I think that's still somewhat of an open question. There isn't a theoretical lifespan on the age of a microbe, but certainly the organisms that we find within these uh, extreme environments at the bottom of the ocean buried in sediments might be some of the longest surviving organisms on the planet. If these hardy microbes can cling to life, using the smallest amount of energy, just maintaining their existence in this difficult and dead environment, where else could life be lurking? On this planet and in the rest of the universe? There could still be remnants of ancient life hanging on in past environments, even on other planetary bodies. Mars is thought to have once had liquid water at its surface and conditions that would be um, somewhat suitable for life to, to emerge and to even thrive in. If that ancient Mars life might have got to the subsurface and been preserved in the subsurface, it's certainly possible that this life might still be hanging on given the energy fluxes that we find from these microbial cells living still on Earth. So if we consider, for example, some of the moons of Jupiter, you know, the, a moon such as Europa, which has a liquid water ocean covered by an icy crust, some of the settings that we can find life on Earth aren't too dissimilar from that. And so 
by studying these extreme environments on Earth, um, we understand better what limits life and, and what, what the boundaries of life are. And, uh, and that gives us a framework in which to think about how life might be persisting on a moon such as Europa. From deep beneath the ocean floor to the tops of the highest trees. For our final story today, we're going climbing up into the canopy of the Monte Verde cloud forest in Costa Rica. Wedged in the nooks and crooks of the trunk and spread out like a carpet across the branches is a hidden world. Plants of all shapes and sizes blooming and blossoming in a green realm that's never been in contact with the ground. You have to remind yourself that this lush garden is a hundred feet up in the air. To study this secretive ecosystem, you have to climb trees. To do it, take strong ropes, skill and bravery. Nalini Nadkarni is known as the queen of canopy research and we're about to ascend into the treetops with her. We join her now hiking out into the forest with a slingshot in her hand. I always feel the sense of excitement and curiosity when I'm just standing on the floor looking up there because I don't know what's up there. And then I start walking around the tree. It's almost like a religious ceremony or something, but I'm always looking at the tree. I'm looking at the angles of the branches. I'm looking at where the canopy plants are. I'm trying to figure out what the best possible angle is for my shot. I had to shoot a line up there so that I could climb it, just like a mountain climber climbs a mountain. They have to get a rope up there first for safety. And then after I figure out exactly where I want to shoot that line, I pull back on the slingshot and up the line goes. And if I'm really lucky, it will go up and over the branch that I've aimed at. I put on my harness and then just by shifting my weight, alternating weight in my legs, weight in my seat harness, I can basically inchworm my way up the rope into the canopy. So when you climb into the canopy of a very wet forest, what you find is that these trees support an amazing community of plants. And they range from very tiny mosses that basically cover the branch surfaces and the trunk surfaces like an oriental carpet. But then on top of those mosses and embedded in the mosses, you get these amazing vascular plants. You get bromeliads, which are in the pineapple family. So you suddenly, you're sitting on this branch and you just, just see these like stacks of pineapples ranging out over this branch. You get these remarkable orchids. Some of them are tiny, tiny little three millimeters tall with infinitely small flowers. Others have this gigantic display of big, broad leaves and these giant sprays of white flowers. You can even get shrubs. So imagine you see this blueberry bush, except it's not on the ground. It's 100 feet above the forest floor, splayed out on this branch. Some of these plants are fruiting, so you get little fruits all over the place. And it has this soil, and in that soil you get earthworms and beetles and ants and microorganisms. And so you've got this complete little mini ecosystem that's just chugging its lives away high above the forest floor. So it's sort of like life on life on life. It's this like layers of life. Another really wonderful thing about being in the canopy is you get to see bird life really close up and you get to see arboreal mammal life really close up. So, you know, especially if you're wearing a red shirt like I am right now, hummingbirds, 
will come right up to you because they love the color red. And then psh, off they go. And the really fun part is when the monkeys come through. So they're the howler monkeys. There are spider monkeys every once in a while, which are much larger. They're as big as me. And they can be really combative. I've seen them have fights, you know, between each other, and then they start getting closer and closer. And it's so extraordinary to be able to watch behavior close up. You know, normally people who study birds or who study monkeys, they're stuck on the ground with their binoculars looking up. They can't really see what's going on. But when you're in the canopy up there, you know, they're your brothers and sisters, those birds and monkeys. And there I am stuck in my harness and I'm just green with envy with, oh, if only I could move through the canopy the way they do. It just blows you away. Even if you've been climbing trees for 35 years, it's still like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this place. Thirty-five years ago, when canopy research was just beginning, people had not explored the forest canopy, and it was actually called the last biotic frontier, meaning like this is the last place on Earth that scientists and explorers have to discover stuff. That was one of the big reasons why I wanted to climb, because scientists are supposed to do discovery, discovery of new and exciting places. So that was a place for me. What I started doing was purely descriptive. What plants are up there? What animals are up there? How many of them are up there? What's the nutrient content of them? It was just purely descriptive. But as I progressed in my research, I began asking more ecological questions. What is the relationship of these canopy-dwelling plants to the host trees? How are they interacting? What happens when these canopy communities are disturbed? And when I'm sitting in the forest canopy, I recognize that this environment is actually, in a funny way, very much like a coral reef. They're incredibly diverse, they support animal life, and perhaps most significantly, they're fragile, just as coral reefs are. When we get bleaching of coral reefs because of too much sunlight or warmer water due to climate change, we see the die-off of these reefs and the loss of diversity, the loss of critical interactions that keep that reef healthy. And the same is true, I discovered, in the forest canopy. And so I did some experiments where I actually cut off meter-long segments of this living carpet. And I thought that they would grow back very quickly. But it turned out that, you know, a year later I came back and nothing had grown back. And after two years, three years, four years, five years, it wasn't until 20 years later that this living material sort of coalesced and occupied the top of the branch. Then other plants began recolonizing and we began getting more regrowth of those canopy-dwelling plants. But even now, 35 years later, when I went back just this last year to look at those patches, I can still see the imprint of where I had removed those patches 35 years ago. So it still has not returned to its original state. It carries the reminder of that disturbance. And one of the things that I've learned both academically and also experientially, is the incredibly critical role that the web of relationships plays in recovery. Even the queen of the canopy is not immune to the dangers of treetop research. One day while working, Nalini had an accident that threatened to strip her of her independence. 
I started leaning on the rope to sort of lean over the branch to look at some mosses, and suddenly I felt the tension of that rope just give way. Nothing was holding me up. And before I could even think, I fell. And I fell 50 feet to the forest floor. When I kind of woke up from being unconscious, I was lying on the ground. I, you know, I wasn't able to sit up or anything. And so all I could really do was look up at the tree I had just been in. And I saw the crown of the tree and I realized there was gonna be a before the fall and an after the fall. The stumps that I saw around me, I just pictured them as tombstones. And I thought, is this it? You know, is this where it ends? Where's my husband? Where's my kids? They weren't there. I ended up in the intensive care unit, the ICU, and I was there for about two weeks. Five of my vertebrae had exploded. I had nine broken ribs. I broke my fibula. I had my pelvis was broken in three parts. My spleen had exploded, so they had to remove my spleen. And then I had traumatic brain injury as well. So, you know, it wasn't until like three days into my being in the ICU that the doctor said, well, you know, she's gonna live, she'll probably walk, but we're not quite sure what will happen after that. I might not be able to go back to my regular life. I might never climb a tree again. I might, I might not be an independent person. I might be dependent on my husband and my family. And it was almost too terrible to contemplate, but it was the beginning of this sense of, I need to make changes. I might need to shift. I might need to change the way I think about who I am. As it turned out, despite my old age and despite you know the severity of my injuries, I've actually been able to go back to tree climbing and I continue my relationship with them. But it's, it's, it's a different feel and I have to accept that, I think. I have to say, it's okay that you're feeling a little more hesitant. It's okay that you're pausing. It's okay that you're testing the rope again. That's okay. Even though it's different from what it used to be like before. And one of the things that I've learned is the incredibly critical role that the web of relationships plays in recovery. And whether it's your existing web of relationships, like for me, I'm fortunate in having this very loving husband and two wonderful children and a set of close friends that just, you know, they, they coalesced around me. They, they put their arms around me as I was recovering. They reassured me that if I never wrote another grant proposal or published another paper again, they would still love me. And I think that this idea of our interdependence is something that we experience in our own lives, especially when we encounter disturbance. And it's certainly something that I've seen in the forest. This idea of when trees are isolated, we're beginning to gather data to show that in fact, isolated trees cannot maintain those relationships. At least certain species of canopy plants aren't being pollinated. And so what it tells me then is, just as human beings require this web of relationships, just as we are embedded in a sea of interdependencies, so are these trees. And so I think it means that we have to be very aware of the effects of isolation on ourselves and on trees and elements of ecosystems, because they can be counter to recovery. You've been listening to the BBC Earth podcast. 
I'm Emily Knight, and our stories today were produced by Eliza Lomas, Sam Grist, and Tom Bonnet. We'll be back next week with more wild stories, with a sting in the tail. Next week, we're risking it all and getting a brush with death. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.